Well, good morning. Um, I apologize for the long time in between. I've been working on something huge the last year, and I'm launching it this week, coming. Um, I'll, uh, I'll talk about it next week. But for this week, wrapping up, um, <clears throat> well, I just finished reading uh, William James' The Variety of Religious Experience. And more than just reading, I spent a couple, few weeks on it. Um, so I've read the book. Oh gosh, I'm not, uh, not at all overestimating when I say at least six times. Probably more. I actually went through and listened to Nietzsche's uh, Zarathustra again. Um, I found an audiobook of a different trans... Well, the same translation as I've read, obviously, before, but somebody else's notes, a new set of notes on Nietzsche's Zarathustra. Well, all that being said, somebody by accident shared a book in our reading group about uh, Rudyard Kipling's If. I find it funny because in school I wrote a paper on American Lit and I included uh, Kipling and the teacher actually uh, deducted me some marks because I added Kipling but lo and behold uh, his most prolific period was in New England. He actually said that he wanted to live in Bombay and Battleboro, but again, when I was young, um, it was a lot for me to <laughs> to be able to uh, express my thoughts. Um, so, of course, I didn't uh, defend myself. I just sat mum. But that said, I still had a wonderful appreciation for Kipling. Uh, yesterday, someone mentioned about carrying water for someone and how it's an expression in the English language. And I also mentioned why I think it's so important that people get uh, a Renaissance education because having read Gunga Din, you get uh, a different perspective of what carrying water can mean because that's what the whole story was about. And it finishes with uh, Gunga Din, you're a better man than I. And that stuck with me for 30 years. But more so than anything else has been a poem that has been as much of a mantra to me as any other. It's a poem called If by Rudyard Kipling. I think it's beautiful. I've always said um, that he was influenced, his father being a scholar of um, India, Bharata, um, the philosophy that I love so much, the Vedanta, uh, the Vedic, whatever you want to call it, this uh, philosophy that, that underpins all of our philosophies, because not only was Kipling in America for some of his most prolific, uh, right, he wrote uh, The Jungle Book, Captain Courageous, A Draft of Kim, right, but he hung out with uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, more importantly, Mark Twain, William James, Henry Adams, Theodore Roosevelt. So I find it absolutely hilarious I come across this book talking about how William James, American psychologist and philosopher that I argue um, was so heavily influenced along with Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and later Nietzsche and even later Jung, all influenced by these same 
books. And I argue it's uh, the Yoga Sutra of Pantanjali especially, because they use this term, the Oversoul. William James uses this term, the Oversoul. Nietzsche uses this term, the Oversoul. Emerson uses this term, the Oversoul. Uh, uh, Walt Whitman created what some people consider an American religion based on this idea of the Atman or the Oversoul. And when I read this poem, if I think you're going to hear this idea of the Atman, the Atman being the universal soul, the soul that powers everything. Our individual selves are but deluded fancy uh, that we have pulled down a piece of the Atman to power our individual wills. But in reality, it's no different to uh, Nietzsche's eternal return in that the only way to truly embrace and truly live life is to embrace uh, the good and the bad, whatever you label, as ordered. Embrace them uh, and be uh, not just willing, but, um, uh, but happy to relive life exactly the same. <clears throat> now on that note, I'll read If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet triumph and disaster, and meet those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, lose and never start again at your beginnings. Ah, I'm sorry, I ruined that. So that next line is, And lose and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. It's the problem, having it memorized and being dyslexic, you jump up a line. Right, so the idea is to not be, uh, to be um, held back by, uh, by, uh, misfortune because it says if you I continue with the poem if you could force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them hold on if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you. If all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son.
So that was Rudyard Kipling's if. Final line. Nowadays, people would consider problematic, obviously, but ugh, just have to uh, understand products of their time. As I said, I've used this in no small part. Essentially like a mantra for me when I was, and it's funny too, because it says here, where is it? Says, uh, <clears throat> they thrilled to Mowgli's adventures among his adopted family of wolves or the mongoose, Ricky Tiki Tavi's epic battles with cobras, tales such as how the camel got his hump and the elephant's child from Kipling's just so stories. They remain beloved bedtime reading. Kim, Kipling's shimmering novel of international intrigue and spiritual quest is a favorite for countless readers, old and young. And teenagers continue to be exposed to the hammering exhortations of if. Yeah, he's not wrong. Right, many even takes the, the section that, right, that I do enjoy myself. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, most important. But make allowance for their doubting, too. Remember, uh, Charles Foster, uh, Charles Sanders Pierce, his first rule of logic is to have a healthy sense of doubt. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, again, don't be fixated on one solution or idea. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim, that's just part of cognition, right? Thoughts. Memory, feelings, experience. But most important, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. That's the Yogacara teaching in a nutshell. Right? The world is Chittamatra. It's mind-born. So how can we manage and deal and interact if not by realizing that our perceptions are limited, but our, uh, well, our feelings are arbitrary in a sense that just like the eternal return of Nietzsche or um, the Ubermensch or Jung's talking about um, laying down of your baggage to stand at the edge of a void to truly become a modern man. It's uh, Nietzsche's immoralist, amoralist, whatever you want to call it. And the idea is the eternal return. What is it that makes a nine-to-fiver so sad, so hopeless? What is this modern malaise we all suffer from? Could it just be simply that we... I mean, there's a French, French uh, saying that says, if you don't have what you love then you should love what you have. That's, that is, that is the eternal return. It sounds like a fancy philosophy, but it's simply just, you know, appreciate what you have. I mean, it's actually that, um, I think she's a psychologist, Amanda Lemke, the one that I criticized her, uh, her, hor her horrible understanding 
of entheogens, but she's not wrong in this idea of the dopamine. So the idea is <laughs> there ain't much we can do about our serotonin receptors and serotonin, um, just like the dopamine uh, through stress and maladaption and whatever other reasons we have far fewer of these uh, receptors, both serotonin and dopamine. Sadly, there's so few serotonin, um, uh, what would you call it, building blocks, right? Uh, tryptophan. Highly recommend beans and rice when you're feeling a little bit blue, um, right? Uh, comfort food. The reason why is it gives us uh, the building blocks for serotonin, right? Contentment. But in the absence of that, dopamine. That's what we use, right? But again... Many of us are born with less of these dopamine receptors. So what's the solution? Well, we've heard this idea of being happy with what you have. Or dopamine, um, what do you call it? Uh, like a withdrawal. Or I mean this weird movement called nofap. So the idea is if you go on a dopamine fast, yeah, that's what they're calling it then you become more sensitive to the dopamine that you do experience. Plus, uh, there's an argument it's related to serotonin, and it can cause um, aggression and pleasure-seeking, and, you know, this, this drive for dopamine satisfaction. So the idea is to calm down. Meditation can actually build more dopamine, but more importantly, not filling your life with all of these dopamine-rich activities, um, pigging out, uh, partying, um, uh, danger, uh, risky uh, behaviors. These are all uh, dopamine-producing behaviors, but they also tend to do the negative. In fact, this goes to a recent discovery I've made myself that so many people talk about entheogens, psychedelics, as being a healing protocol, but they talk about taking them same as meditation, being on a cushion. They never talk about the benefits after, even though science has shown us this. They've tested single-dose psychedelics, and these people have uh, benefited for months, if not years after. So it misses the point here that psychedelics allow us, as I've always said, um, to be able to see the possibility of breaking through our current state and perspectives, and changing, seeing a possibility for growth, for change, for, for whatever you might want to uh, call it. But, I, but what I always heavily discounted was the idea that during these experiences, right, formative experiences, uh, these patterns, these pathways in the mind be it chitta or manas, so your consciousness or your physical mind, these new patterns are created. And we still have the use of these patterns, even once we're no longer on the psychedelics. So to me, that's the greatest insight here. Right? What we need is like what William James talked about. Not everyone is able to be a healthy-minded individual in which uh, he talks about single-born people. So some people just are born to see life as awesome or they just don't see the intensity of the suffering uh, 
inherent to existence or what have you then there's healthy-minded individuals that can be reborn these twice-born individuals who can see meaning and hope uh, in everyday life uh, with that additional crutch or that additional um, meta of uh, belief but William James warns that there is a segment of the population and I argue it's only gotten larger the Buddha realized how many people were in the population this is why gods had to essentially beg him to teach because it seems the majority of people are now what William James called the sick soul these are individuals who realize that life is inherently suffering and that no sense of hope or wish or even meaning is going to change that. Some of us... <sighs> there's so many expressions when it comes to this idea that, you know, we've been dealt, uh, you know, aces and eights. <laughs> but that's not the idea here. It's, it's no different than Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return. So, some of us can fool ourselves, others can see the meaning in life. But then there are those who have to find meaning in the dissatisfaction of, of existence. This is why I love Albert Camus. Albert Camus. He, he said something about, should I just snuff myself or make coffee? That's this idea, right? And people don't understand this. Imagine being one of William James' six souls. And so when you get up in the morning, you don't see any reason for getting out of bed, let alone making coffee. Why? Well, the argument is anxiety is just attachment to anxiety, right? When people are sick, especially uh, chronic illness for long term, they tend to suffer from anxiety, and that anxiety can become depression. That depression can become OCD. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, as it were. So that's what the, this takeaway here is, is Albert Camus, like William James, realized that not everyone can get up in the morning and go, awesome, the birds are chirping, the sun is shining. There are certain people that can look out there and go, yeah, it's awesome, the birds are chirping, the sun is shining, but... I'm going to get cancer from the, those sun rays and those birds are actually dinosaurs in disguise. So the world isn't all uh, sunshine and rainbows now, is it? I know, I apologize. My jokes are terrible. But that's what Camus realized, just like William James. He realized that um, to some people, life is inherently suffering and there's nothing that can change that perspective. So he argues that the secret is to embrace the absurd. And what does he mean by that? The eternal return. It is no different than Nietzsche's. They just keep rehashing this because nobody's listening. Not at not nobody. There is lots of people complaining about this malaise, this sickness, this sadness that we all need healed. But very few are listening. I made a podcast strictly about this. When you read, you should listen. When you, when you speak, you should listen. And when you listen, you should think. This idea that uh, to be a tree amongst leaves, right? Not blown about by the breeze, but rooted, right? You have a base. 
You have a, you're grounded. Right? So if you're grounded in knowing that life is suffering, you're not deluded by this idea that, oh, well, someday things will get better, or if you are like Camus, or one of the six souls of William James, you know things aren't going to get better. You just happen to realize the truth of suffering, the truth of existence. It's <laughs> it's one of the first parts that you learn about uh, in Buddhism. So, I, you know, nothing is permanent. That helps to understand, right, the good and bad, right? Triumph and disaster, both imposters. Nothing is permanent, nothing lasts. Save for the truth that life is inherently dissatisfying. Dukkha. But why? Again, all within Buddhism, this is what taught Nietzsche, which taught Emerson, which, not which taught Emerson, but Emerson, Nietzsche, Whitman, uh, Kipling, they're all taught by the same idea. The eternal return, as Nietzsche calls it, uh, embrace the absurd, as Camus calls it, um, um, in Buddhism, desire, dukkha, dukkha, I've talked about this, uh, bad air, you surround yourself because of tanha, this is thirst, often translated as desire. This idea that for what you want, but what people don't realize is what you want is not something within externality. It's weird, it's a, it's a weird word, but how can you be given something that you want? You can be given something you need, but how can you be given something you want? You choose what it is that you want. So that's the teaching. Since wanting, thirst, desire are arbitrary. Thus meaning is arbitrary. So the secret is found within Camus and Nietzsche and James and Kipling and, and, and. Emerson said, go out into nature and, and be awed by the majesty of not the flowers and the trees, but just, just the majesty that powers, right? Not the, the flowers and the trees, but but the energy and the, 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 the interconnectedness, the, the web that is nature, everything. I mean, I, I think of um, mycelium as a great example, right? Uh, the living colony of, of uh, what we consider mushrooms. Not only do they pretty much reach everywhere, in the earth, in the soil, so that when you're walking on the earth, you're likely walking on mycelium. More importantly, not only do they grow with and in and beside and among the trees and the roots and the plants and the soil and everything that's in it, but they actually aid the plants. This mycelium can help protect them, they can help inform um, Walt Whitman was no different, right? So, 
you got to fake it till you make it. I mean, Camus was pretty clear about that, right? If life is inherently dissatisfying, if it's even worse, right, as he said, well, then you just have to find meaning where you can find it. If it's enjoying your cup of coffee in the morning, and that's where it's at. I mean, I made a joke once, and I'll leave it at this. The wife and I were walking on our morning walks, <clears throat> and there was this delivery guy. He just seemed so unhappy. He blocked the sidewalk. He wanted us to go around him on the street in the snow. And I just said to the wife, like, that's 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 the inherent suffering of life. Not that being a delivery guy in the snow sucks, but harping or embracing the, the suck of your job is why life sucks for you. But I'll quote, uh, well, I won't, I can't remember exactly who, but it was a, one of these military guys, uh, uh, Jekyll Wilnick or um, David Goggins, this idea they teach of embracing the suck. Right, So now you've completely changed that perspective. What used to make you sad and make you demoralized and hate life is now your reason. Right, If you think about it, that's how some of these crazy extreme athletes get through this. It's not even the achievement. It's literally the idea of not being defeated by something. Right, So if you can take that away... The idea, if life is inherently dissatisfying, dissatisfying, suffering, life is out to get you, well, then you can make your meaning to not let them win. Not let, not let life um, beat you down, right? If life hands you lemons, I mean, so be it. It's just what it gives you. At least you're getting something, am I right? There's... Uh, there's so many opportunities in our life where we'll actually embrace something that is actually incredibly harmful to us. Right? But that's all I wanted to share today, actually, with my love of uh, Kipling, my love of the book. Uh, well, my love of books, I guess. <laughs> it's been a busy year, though. I've been working real hard to try to... Uh, get better at expressing my thoughts. I've been practicing on writing and reading. Um, I'd love to be able to share some of my thoughts in a broader fashion. Right? Somebody said something once, and I can't remember who it was. just said that um, you should write your own story because it could be somebody else's uh, survival guide someday. And as Nietzsche said, you're not creating for, for yourself, you're not creating for the ones you love, you're not even creating for the current generation. Remember to be motivated by creating for a future generation, right? Because the majority is always wrong, and the minor minority is seldom right. So uh, you're going to feel ostracized, if you are circling the right idea, if it were. But neither here nor there. I tend to be long-winded. My apologies. I hope you all have a wonderful day. And, uh, yeah, um, 
leave me a little note if you if you'd like if there's any specifically uh, you'd like I talk about I'm not sure whether to keep this podcast as Buddhism and then maybe create a different podcast that will talk about um, like you know I talk about other philosophy um, maybe even some healing uh, health and wellness uh, ideas but we'll see so have a wonderful day thank you very much for listening I can't believe the number of people that I have um, listening to some of this stuff. I hope you're listening to the content and not just my voice, as I've heard some of them just enjoy listening. Uh, Others uh, appreciate uh, my different take on some of these uh, subjects. But again, uh, this is, uh, I'm going to have to share my, uh, my curriculum vitae, my resume, as they say. I'm not really good at that sort of stuff, but... um, None of this is new to me. I have been studying this stuff for decades. Um, I've just always uh, taught and shared um, in person. Um, And and now I'm trying to share this um, digitally. When I began this podcast about four years ago, three, four years ago, it was just to record for me because I wasn't able to take uh, written notes. Uh, as most people would, so the audio was just uh, notes for me as I was trying to figure out why there were so many mistakes when it came to these protocols of meditation and mindfulness. Uh, and having had a background in philosophy, obviously, um, you know, there was no uh, no separation in my mind. Um, so as I said, I've tried to keep the podcast as mostly Buddhism. I think that might have been a mistake. Um, now that I'm seeing, what, 75% of, uh, well, I'm here in the West, so 75% are actually believers, mostly Christian, surprisingly. But they lump me, uh, as a Buddhist, in with uh, indigenous beliefs, which I also uh, follow. I mean, I don't, I think you know me by now, I don't really list myself into anything in particular, but to think that a Buddhist and uh, people who follow indigenous beliefs are in the category of the irreligious, as opposed to the believers. Wow, that was a big shock for me to see. So I've been working heavily on this idea of the importance of religion. There been many books written, uh, particularly in the last few years, but the majority of them, not the majority, I should be careful to use it, the words I use, but um, there seem to be many who have... Um, uh, an agenda, so that they're either anti-religion because they think religion's bad, or they're pro-religion because they think atheism's bad, Uh, but where is somebody in the middle who is like, man, like, where are these solid agnostics like me, sitting right in the middle who are like, you know, religion is not as toxic as you think it is, um, you know, people are toxic, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So, on that, uh, that's uh, that's something I've been working on pretty heavily, actually. Uh, meaning, but more importantly, uh, this toxicity. Oh, see, look at that. Literally what I wrote. That's the last note I wrote in my notepad. Like, um, I carry around a notepad. Now that I've been uh, trying to express my, uh, my thoughts and my... Uh, my opinions, uh, right, in writing, a uh, good practice was to uh, keep a notepad. 
so that I didn't obviously forget things, but more importantly, I was able to structure and put things together. All right, I find, and I wrote here, so I said, uh, for me up here, we had, uh, we had a, a, a minister jailed for nearly two months, which I think is horrible. I mean, we had people protesting Guantanamo Bay, and then, so for me, I wrote that uh, it made me a believer, but what I mean by that is it made me a believer in the importance of religion itself. Right? We can't remove that from our society. Look, we only have, what, about supposedly 11% of our population that are actually atheists or irreligious. And look at how toxic it has made um, our society. Sure, it was toxic before with some of these extremists, these zealots, these religious zealots, but now we have these irreligious zealots that are just as bad. Right, because I said 75% uh, who believe are the real Canadians, I feel, because they believe in something. Just as Camus said, if you get up in the morning and you don't decide, that's where my mistake lied. Lay. Is not deciding. Um, should I snuff my shelf or have coffee? I just, you know, screw it. That's the difference. Right? They've chosen something to mean and to matter. Something. So I went on, and the 25% being irreligious, and they include the Buddhists and the indigenous beliefs, which is disgusting because there's more believers in the irreligious group of 25% than there are non-believers. So I just wrote insulting that we are not belief simply because it's not acceptable. Right? This whitewash of history, I've mentioned it before, that the Anishinaabe people, of North America, the ones that make up the majority of the indigenous people, had a tradition, a written tradition, a wizard, uh, shaman tradition, uh, holy men who kept stories and, and aphorisms and lessons, philosophy, no different, right? Think about this whitewash of history. I made this joke once that <clears throat> I even had to make the joke again recently. These people talk about philosophy having been born in Greece, and I just said, I, I, I said, uh, chuckling in... Um, Oracle Bone Script, which is a reference to some of the earliest uh, um, pieces of uh, the Chinese Book of Change. Now that, it was a post about the most popular book being the Bible. And I said, well, maybe the most popular, most read, uh, most influential, I think it was said, most influential book. I said, maybe in the West, because the most influential book in the East is either the I Ching, if you're looking... Uh, at West Asia, if you're looking at South Asia, you could maybe talk about the Gitas, um, both of which predate, right? But I had actually forgot about the fact that the native North Americans, I mean, I hesitate saying native because their story actually says that they came from elsewhere, but this uh, indigenous lore speaks of the exact same teachings as what we were talking about. In fact, I'll finish it on a greeting in Anishinaabek Moan, Anishinaabe Moan, uh, which is the uh, indigenous language, the uh, used to be Ojibwe, I guess you'd call it, at one time. Uh, they actually greet people by saying, Ginada uh, Winabuzu. Uh, and that actually means, uh, below, obviously, are you the creator? Because the story went that the Creator would come back again, but come back in human form. This is no different to Avilokitesra, Guan Yin. Uh, it's no different from angels, if you look at the Bibles 
depiction of, of angels. It's the exact same story. It's the Bodhisattva story. Um, Jin. <clears throat> in a sense. I, you know what I mean. But, as I said, the indigenous story had that the creator would come back in human form. And it goes one step further because there's a saying, and pardon me if I get this word wrong, but, um, what, Wendemann? When Wendemann? When Wendemann? There's another word you would actually, once again, would say, Wendemann uh, or something like that. I, I promise um, it's not that far off, but it's, it's wrong. <laughs> but all that matters is what it means. Wendemann, or this word, means we are all connected. So this, uh, this tenant, this idea that we all come from a, a shared source, um, is what the indigenous people believe. It's the uh, teachings that so many people love. It's uh, what so many people are worshipping when it comes to Earth or Creator Gods, this Gaia. It's what we love about the Transcendental Movement. It's what we love about Walt Whitman and Emerson, Thoreau, James. Um, I argue it's what we love about uh, Nietzsche and Jung. Uh, I argue it's what we love about in our literature and in our archetypes. It's this idea that uh, it only takes a small portion of humanity uh, to create something special. Right? We are a meta, uh, a meta. We are a meta creator. We are a meta creation. We are. Um, we are some greater than its parts, but more importantly, we create more than what our package would uh, denote possible, if you know what I mean. Like, we're made up of all these little pieces that you wouldn't think that when you put them together that they would create such a wonderful creature. But at the same time, once we put together this wonderful creature... This creature produces fantastic creations. It's awe-inspiring. Right? That's why I talk about these ideas of moonshot goals. Right? Because this human creature is capable of exponential growth. And the only thing holding us back is our own doubt, our own hubris. In a sense, a reverse hubris. You know of many people who walk around thinking how wonderful they are, but they walk around thinking how wonderful their their non-existent self is. Imagine the potential that a human creature can create when he sees the infinite potential of, of his oversoul. As I said before, when people see the potential when they're no longer hindered by their biases, by their ego, by their their selfish desires. How many people, when they set aside ego and reputation, have they created far more than they could ever have imagined? But on that, um, I'll leave you. I recommend, uh, recommend William James. recommend... Uh, even uh, some more Kipling as well. I don't think... Uh, 
don't think yeah don't think it'd be a wasted time but I'd also recommend that you take a look at how pardon my use of the term how incestuous this this teaching this period of our history is right from 1890 to 1920 right Rudyard Kipling was one of the most popular authors but at the same time was when uh, Jung was working when uh, uh, James was writing as well. I mean, these philosophers, these great thinkers. That's what we need to get to again. That's what I'm hoping for. A new renaissance of, of belief, of compassion and understanding. And I think that begins with uh, healing uh, the tragedy of trauma. Right? The shame of trauma. Uh, the shame of trauma in this case is uh, denial that life is trauma, denial that uh, life uh, is uh, is guaranteed to bring about trauma. Uh, but it's all about how you handle and manage that trauma, right? Trauma, a German word uh, for dream, and it all relates. I know it doesn't seem like it relates, but uh, a nightmare in German is Albtraum, Albtraum, which is demon dream. Right, so uh, they used this word uh, traum, trauma, for a reason, because the only reason why you're suffering today because of anything that happened in the past, or because of something that you want to happen in the future, the only reason why you suffer today, is because you're experiencing that thought, that memory, that attachment, as if it were happening now. That's a memory. That's a thought. That's an object no different than any other in the mind, but you're giving it the power to influence you, as opposed to you realizing that you have the power of influence, right? So, last note is this past year I had to revisit the idea of the will to power with Nietzsche. Because so many people talk about uh, his philosophy of the will to power. I usually would just ignore it because he didn't want to publish the book Will to Power, but it is present in a lot of his works. So I set myself, programmed myself to think about your space. And in the end, I realized that Nietzsche wasn't talking about a will to power. Specifically, we have to remember, like so many have said before me, that um, when Nietzsche wrote his books, particularly Zarathustra, the page bled with aphorisms and metaphor and multiple meanings. So when Nietzsche uh, set about a, a, an expression of will to power, I find it absolutely sad but also hilarious that no one stops and goes, well, maybe he meant more than just one thing. So maybe he meant more than just the goal is the will to power. What if Nietzsche also meant for us to understand that it's the will that we must power and have power over for us to accomplish anything that we seek out to do? So, on that, I'll leave us and thus spake an intergang. Have a wonderful day.